So often I, during that time, move this over so that you guys can know what we're doing here. We're, we, we are still wanting to make room in our hearts for God to move. This morning as we talk, we're going to be talking about generosity. And I have to guess that for most of you, when a pastor wants to talk about money, it's an awkward time. A lot of pastors just say, I just hate talking about money. And yet, the only time I talk about money is when it's God's people dealing with their hearts to get in on what God's doing. So that doesn't bother me at all. And we've had a lot of bad teaching on money, where what's called the prosperity gospel, where there's this deal making. If you'll give, then God's going to give to you, and you can get rich by somehow planting some seed and watching God make you rich and abundant here in, on planet Earth, which is totally missing the point of what God promises to do when his people respond to him. So whether it's bad teaching or no teaching, uh, Paul dedicates two chapters in 2 Corinthians to talk about the principles of giving and generosity. So this morning, you can be grateful that we're not going to deal with every verse in both chapters. But I hope if you have your Bible, that you will follow along in 2 Corinthians and we'll be together in chapters 8 and 9. But I want us to start by focusing on one verse. And if you have to choose one, I know Paul said this is the point, which is always fun when he says now, okay, in summary, this is the point. But I want to make this verse the point this morning. Because I think if you get this one down and see how the other verses deal with it, then it'll help you understand biblical generosity. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. I think the old New American Standard perhaps said as he's purposed in his heart. There are very few commands in these two chapters, but this verse is in the imperative voice saying that each one of us, we have to make a decision in our hearts, not from somebody manipulating us or from somebody wrongly convincing us. It's not an external argument. It's an internal argument where we purpose in our hearts. We decide in our hearts what we're going to give. We don't do it because somebody made us. We don't do it to get them off our back. We do it because God loves a cheerful giver. So this morning, we're not taking another offering, okay? You, you don't have to get all worried about what we're going to do in response to this sermon. But I do want you to say, okay, Lord, teach me. This is your word, and so teach me. So would you make that our prayer? Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we do pray that you will be our teacher. We ask you, Lord, by your spirit to take your word and work in our lives. So we open ourselves up to you. And we pray now by your spirit, you would take what's been written long ago and preserved down through the ages. And we're so privileged to hold in our hands. Would you, Lord, speak to us in a personal way? And that is why we pray, Lord God, speak to my heart. 
Would you pray that prayer aloud with me? Lord God, speak to my heart. And Lord, as you speak, we'll know that it's you. So we listen now for your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to say three things. Now, each of those things has about five things to explain them. (laughs) All right, but we're going to say three things. And here's the first one. It starts in the heart. So let's look at what he says when he says we have to purpose in our hearts. So how does that work? Well, it's motivated by grace. Ten times in these two chapters, we see the word grace appearing. Go back in chapter 8 and just look at how it starts. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, in case you... We're going to explain this offering in a moment of what he's trying to talk to them about. But the people of Macedonia, the churches of Macedonia, had been persecuted. Wow, this week, I, in communication with one of the missionaries that I get the privilege of encouraging, uh, he said back to me, I'm walking out the door. He's in northern Africa. He said, I'm walking out the door to go follow up with a new believer who has encountered incredible persecution, and he's trying to decide if he ought to run. And yesterday, last night, I received an update where he said, I talked with him and he decided to stay and to face the persecution. And I wish you could have seen him today. He went to one of our gatherings and the brothers gathered around him and they prayed for him. And it was a beautiful thing to watch them encouraging him as he takes a new stand in his faith in Christ. Now, these believers had encountered incredible persecution and they had lost their jobs, and they had so little to give. But yet when Paul started talking about the needs of the church back in Jerusalem, it said that, notice the grace, verse 1 of chapter 8, how the grace of God had been given to them. For in severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, and I can testify beyond their means of their own accord, begging us for the, here's that word again, you can't maybe see it in your translation where it says favor, but the grace, the grace of taking part in this. Now go down to verse 6. We urge Titus to come and complete this among you, this act of grace. Ten times in two chapters, he refers to grace working in someone's life how grace had been working in the churches of Macedonia, and how grace was working in the hearts of the Corinthians. But here's another interesting reference to grace. Notice what it says in verse 9 of chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. I can't explain that. I don't understand it. But he's saying it was grace in Jesus, operating in Jesus, that made him leave his wealth of heaven and become poor for our sakes. True generosity, biblical generosity, starts in the heart. It's a work of grace, and watch what happens when it works in our heart. It gives us a deep desire to give. Remember the verse said, not reluctantly or under compulsion? The desire to give and get in on some offering, whether it be your weekly offering, your monthly giving, or some special offering, it starts in the heart, and there's a deep desire inside you that wants to get in on it. 
I love what verse 4 says in chapter 8. They were begging us to take part in the relief. Please let us give an offering. (laughs) Please let us get in on what God's doing. Now that doesn't sound like somebody giving reluctantly. It sounds like grace working in someone's heart as they beg for the opportunity to give. There in verse 4 it also says they were begging to get in on the take part is the word koinonia. They wanted to have fellowship in this relief for the saints. So let's talk just a minute about these saints I made some notes that I want to share with you about the Jerusalem church. The recipients of this offering would be the Hebrew Christians, and they were poor for several reasons. They had converted to Christianity. They had particular baptism in following Christ, so it had resulted in a social and economic ostracism in Jerusalem where Judaism dominated the life of all the people. The sharing of the goods that we read about in the book of Acts started meeting their needs. But these Palestinian residents, by the way, it wasn't called Israel at that time, okay? It was called Palestine. The Palestinian residents suffered from a lack of food due to famine that had descended from the reign of of Emperor Claudius. And as the mother church, they had a large number of teachers and missionaries and visitors that were coming by, and they wanted to be generous to them. And finally, these Jews had double tax. They had to pay taxes to Rome, and they had to pay taxes to the Jewish authority. And so when these believers heard about how they were suffering back in Jerusalem, they said, give us a chance to give. But you want to hear something that maybe you haven't thought about how more beautiful this is. These were Gentiles wanting to give back to Jews, wanting to meet the needs of these Jewish followers of Christ. Anytime you hear of racial separation and you hear of ethnic division, that's not the gospel at work. But instead, the gospel always makes us see people as our equal before God in need of the cross. And so this moving in their hearts, this begging to get in on it, because grace had moved in them, they had a deep desire to give, and their hearts were moved by the need. They also were following the example of Christ. We read that a moment ago, how Jesus became poor, so that we in his poverty might be rich. And anytime we talk about motivation for giving, please understand, it has nothing to do with making you right in your right standing with God. Giving can never buy favor in God's sight. Someone gives reluctantly, And I've had this picture in my mind all week of someone coming and reluctantly laying a gift on the altar and God picking it up and saying, oh, you can have this back. Like, you really think I need it? Okay? God doesn't need our stuff. But he doesn't want us to try to be satisfied with our stuff. 
because our stuff will never meet the deepest needs of our heart. And so God loves that cheerful giver who comes because it started in the heart. And, and here's the final thing I want you to see about this starting in the heart. We trust God as the source. When we give, we're acknowledging where it came from and we're acknowledging where the other provision would come from. So if giving is not an act of worship, it's because somehow we have disconnected it from our hearts and somehow we're acting like God needs our stuff rather than knowing that God is our source. Two chapters here. I printed them off so I could write all over them. And I want to point out just a couple more things to you about God being our source. In chapter 8, verse 15, it says, As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, I don't know how your Bible is set up, and some of you are reading electronically, and perhaps you even have a note in your electronic Bible that makes it easier for you to click on the reference, all right? But here, if you go to the margins of this Bible and you look at the reference, do you know what that verse is referring to? Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. It's referring back to the manna. Do you remember God providing for his children in the wilderness wanderings? And he told them, you go out every day and you get what you need, and you eat it. You don't get more than you need. You get what you need, and you eat it. And on Saturday, no, excuse me, wrong day, worship on Saturday. A Friday, you go out before the Sabbath, and you get two days' worth, because I'm not going to do it on the Sabbath. You're going to rest. You're not, I'm going to keep teaching you this routine of your need to rest and worship me. And so you take in two days' worth. Now, what would happen when they took in too much, more than they could eat? The next day, it was rotten, and it was smelly. It was like when you need to clean out your fridge, maybe broccoli in your fridge, all right? I mean, you get the picture. It's left over, and it stinks. God was teaching them that he delighted in providing for them as their source. And so here, Paul, in reference to what it means to acknowledge God as the source, he said, whoever had gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack, because God was working as their source. Then in chapter 9, look at it again, in verse 8, God shall be able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all sufficiency, in all things, you may abound in, again, it's all good works. So he is repeating himself over and over that God will give you what you need. Please take this principle to the bank. God will always give you what you need to do his will. Always. Doing the will of God is never about money. Money may be about timing. Money may be about lessons on trusting. But doing the will of God is never, do you have enough money to do it? 
Doing the will of God is acknowledging God as your source and watching him provide. He delights in giving to his children to do his will, not to stuff themselves with stuff, because it'll start stinking, but to give you what you need in any situation. He wants us to see it starts in the heart and it moves through to God is trusted as our source. But let's move on. What about the principles of biblical generosity? I couldn't figure out what to call this. I wanted to say it starts in the heart and then it flows in a pattern. It, it starts in the heart and then it moves through a certain shape. I in no way want to make you think the things we're going to list because we can only get five on the page. I don't want you to think that these things are all conclusive of principles of biblical generosity. But I do want you to see them in these two chapters and understand how they teach us about biblical generosity. First, let me tell you why I'm calling it biblical generosity. Because certainly there is generosity that doesn't come from the heart of a believer. There's a sense in which common grace is moving in the hearts of people, especially people who have so much that start thinking about they're not going to live forever and what can they do with their stuff to maybe let their own name live on, <laughs> but they want to give to make something good for others. I sometimes walk into places like the wings of the hospital and I see it named after somebody and I think, I wonder how much that cost. You know, I, I wonder how much money they gave so that they would have their picture in the lobby and this wing would be named after them. I'm, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm thrilled that somebody had, had some stuff and they felt moved to give to others. But that's not really the way we describe and define biblical generosity because biblical generosity starts in the heart of the believer but let's list five things that seem to make the list of what it means to give biblically one there's no comparison and there's no compulsion that guy on tv that says send me your money and it'll, and will make god will make you rich no you send him your money and he'll get rich okay that's not what we're talking about here it's not making you feel guilty. Now, can you differentiate the difference in guilt and conviction? There is a sense in which sometimes God moves in our hearts and convicts us that we ought to do something. But that is not an external compulsion. It is an internal propulsion of God working in our lives and there's no comparison he talks in here it's not about giving and it's not you comparing yourself to somebody else but instead it's you understanding how God works in the life of us individually so there's no comparison there's no compulsion I could unpack those in chapters eight and nine but I'm going to move on all right number two in biblical generosity it's more than just giving leftovers it's more than just saying, well, you know, I think I can spare a little of this this week. Biblical generosity starts with a sense of I want to honor God or I see a need that needs to be met. Now, let's just talk about some ways that shows up in our life, the need, the request to give. When you walk through the checkout line and the person says, uh, would you like to give, a, give something to feed the hungry? 
don't know about you, but I feel so guilty saying no. I mean, the way you phrase that, of course I do. But I try to decide when I can just deal with that little sense of guilt or when I can say, thank you so much for asking, but my wife and I have a pattern of giving that we follow and, and we do like giving, but that's just not the pattern we're, we're using this right now at this time. So, you know, some way to act like, nope, can't have any of my money. You know, I mean, so you, you know how that works, but it's not guilt. It's not just throwing a little bit of money at a leftover. This week, as, as I was reading about this, I came across an article that was a story told by a friend of ours who goes by the name of Nick Ripkin. Some of you may have seen some of his work, his writings, and some of the things about him. But he tells a story about going to, he was in South Africa, and he went up to the border of the neighboring country. And he went in there. He said he was so tired when he arrived. And he got there, and as he knew that the mission board back home had granted $10,000 to buy Bibles and to help the new believers. He was so excited that he was going to be able to tell them because he knew most of them might make a dollar a day, maybe. And when they finally recognized him in the service and he stood up and he said, our mission board And this was a big deal in apartheid, South Africa, way up in the mountains on the border. He said, our mission board has decided that they wanted to grant an offering that we might be able to make sure everybody that can read has a Bible and we can find ways to give Bibles to those in new places where they're taking the gospel. And he said, all of a sudden, the people broke out into spontaneous worship and they started singing, but then someone got up and said, we can't let them be the only people that give. We need to give too. If there's a need to buy Bibles, then we ought to join in the offering. And he said for two hours, they danced and brought their offering up to the front. And children getting so excited about it would beg their parents to give them some coins so they could run outside to the kiosk and find somebody to give them more change for their quarter, you know, so they could bring it back in and make more trips back and forth to the altar. And he said, I was thinking, how long is this offering going to last? And he was watching it. He said, and there was one little old lady, she was sitting over on the side, and she had this real incredible look on her face. And finally, she came up to the table where people were putting their offerings and she took out a handkerchief that was tightly tied. She stood there trying to get it open and then used her teeth to try to undo it. Finally got the knot out and she took one copper coin and she laid it on the table and she stood there a minute and she turned and walked away. Nick said he couldn't resist figuring out what was the story behind that copper coin. So when the service was over, he went up and he asked the pastor, he said, so what is this? He said, well, it's a leftover British half penny. And what the lady doesn't know is it's out of circulation and it's worth absolutely nothing. but I'm going to go find out her story. So the pastor walked and he found her and they sat down and they talked a while. Nick stood over to the side pretending not to watch but waiting to hear what had just happened. Finally came back and said, she'd been saving that coin for 
the needs in the end of her life. It's like a retirement account that she had been saving. And she just felt so compelled that she didn't want to be left out but wanted to find a way to get in on the offering. She gave her entire retirement. She didn't know that it was worth nothing. And Nick said, well, why don't we set up an account and give some money and provide for her? He said, no, no, no. Don't rob her of the blessing of giving all that she had. Wise pastor. And he said, she belongs to us. She won't have any needs. We'll take care of her. And Nick said, well, can I at least buy the coin? And so he gave some money out of his own pocket as much as he had at their currency and said he still to this day looks at that coin and remembers the lady who didn't give her leftovers. She gave all that she had and on earth it was worth nothing. But on the scale of heaven's measurement it was like that widow that Jesus said she just gave more than everybody else. Biblical generosity is more than the leftovers. It is a searching our life to see if we can get in on the opportunity to give. So there's no comparison and there's no compulsion. It's more than the leftovers, and we're motivated to give so that we can do it together. It's funny, as you read through this, you, you begin to see in these chapters that even though they were not supposed to be comparing themselves to each other, he did say the fact that more people are getting in on this offering, we want to get in on it too. Notice chapter 9, verse 1. I like the big word, it's superfluous, meaning you don't need me to repeat myself again. It's ridiculous for me to have to write to you about the ministry of the saints. Now, why did he say that? Well, in case you are interested in this offering, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in the first letter, he says, I want you to start now preparing. And every day on Sunday, I want you to, to take your time on the first day of the week when you worship, to be reminded that this offering's coming. And you go ahead and start preparing to give so that when I get there, I won't have to remind you to take the offering. Get the offering ready, he wrote in the first letter. Now he says, I've already told you about this ministry to the saints, and I know that you're ready. For I boast about you to all the people of Achaia, Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Now, what did he just say? He said, I tell everybody that you want to give, and when they hear that you want to give, they say, we want to give too. There is something about God moving among his people that makes them say, hey, let's figure out a way to get in on this together. Let me tell you a local story. Some of you may know that I did an interim that way over at Noonday Baptist Church. And that's the first time I'd ever done an interim. I told them when they interviewed me, I may mess this up. You know, I've pastored many years. I've never done an interim. And 
we had great joy. It was right after KK was diagnosed with cancer. They, the ladies loved on her, came up every week, and they, they wanted to rub her bald head. I mean, you know, it was a, they were really sweet to us over there, and we enjoyed that. While we were there, one day I was talking to the business administrator, and he said, you know, when the pastor left and we've gone through a little confusion here, our offerings have been way off, and we're down to the point that, that uh, we're, we're going to be in the hole here soon. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we haven't been able to give our regular contribution to Southern Baptist Missions. I said, really? What else? What would it take for us to find zero? So we came up with a figure. I'm going to make this up. I don't remember. I think it was, let's just say, ish, all right? I think we came up with a figure that we needed 45000 or so, if I remember right, to find zero. It's not a, not a huge church. But I led them through a couple of these principles in this chapter to say, let's purpose in our heart. Let's go ask God what he would have us give, and let's come back and get in on this together. They were so motivated by praying together and wanting to give that they gave over $100,000 in that special offering because the church motivated each other to pray and to celebrate what God was doing. There is a sense in which believers can say, there's something that needs to be done and we need to pray about doing it together. So biblical generosity not compared or compulsion, not with leftovers, motivated to give together, and the desiring moves into doing. Over and over in these chapters, Paul said, now you wanted to give. <laughs> when I told you about the needs of the saints, you said, man, I really want to get in on that. Then he says, what have you done about it? It's not enough that you want to do it. You need to actually do it. So he challenge them to take their desire and to move it into action. That's in chapter 8, verse 10 and 11. Let's take just a minute to read it together so you'll know I didn't make this up. All right, uh, chapter 8, verse 10. As in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work but also the desire to do it. So now finish doing it well. Your readiness in desiring it may be matched up by your completing it, out of what you have. So get on with it and finish it. Now, here's one more principle I think is really big in these chapters. Integrity matters. When you're involved in giving biblically and generously, you have every right to check out to make sure that it's going to be followed through with. Paul talks in these chapters about sending somebody to collect the offering. And he says, we're sending to you, Titus, he loves you. We're sending to you some men that we know we can trust. And notice what he says in verse 20, this course that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. Verse 21, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. We're going to great lengths to make sure that nobody thinks we're stealing the money. Folks, I'm telling you, it's so sad 
But there's so many times when you think you're giving to meet a need and you don't check it out and it's not fulfilled in the way it was presented. And that makes you, you know, when you get burned, you don't want to just keep getting burned. And so you, you don't want to give anymore. Don't let someone else's manipulation rob your heart from an opportunity to see God with integrity fulfill what's being done. Every church I've been a part of, we've tried to make sure that no one person counts the money with the door closed. Today, it's not nearly as much problem because people don't use real money anymore, you know. It all is taking place online and through electronic transfers. And, you, you know, we're not going to be able to manipulate that, all right? But we try to make sure we go to great lengths that two people can sign off on the giving and we know that nobody's putting it in their pocket. And I'm telling you, that's a big deal. I know of business offices in churches that have a plaque on the wall Verse 21, we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. We want to do this right. We want to do it with transparency. That's biblical generosity. But there's one more thing I want to say about this. It starts in the heart. It moves through a predictable pattern. And then number three, it results in God's glory. In chapter 9, he says, we are celebrating this provision as from God. Notice verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way that through us produce thanksgivings to God. This is so interesting to see the cycle that Paul is telling them about. He said, when you give and then they get it, it's like we started a little song and it became a full chorus with an orchestra because you got to get in on it and you thanked God for the opportunity and this church got to get on it and they thanked God for the opportunity and over here there was great thanksgiving to God. I had something this week happen that I don't think I've ever quite happened before. I was talking with a pastor trying to encourage him in his church. He said, look, we decided that we, we've got a series that we're doing called Home for the Holidays, and we want to pay for some missionaries to come home for the holidays or pay for some children to go visit their missionary parents on the field or some parents to go visit. Can you help me make those connections? And all week I felt like Santa Claus, you know. I'm trying to find out where there's a need and where somebody can do this. And one missionary leader in northern Africa wrote me back, and he said, I I got in touch with this guy who's trying to come home to see his aging parents and some, his father just died of some health problems with his mom and his grown children, they've not seen each other in years and he's over there praying, asking God to show him how he can come home during the Christmas holidays and we made this connection and told him we wanted to pay for his airfare. Many thanksgivings to God. Watching God work in one situation and get the praise in both situations. Watching him at work. Uh, KK and I talked about what has gone on in our life as we've seen and celebrated the provision that comes from God. When we were in seminary, we were broke. Okay, how broke? There were a whole lot of Mondays that I went to see my friend whose wife had a real job. 
you know, mine didn't pay like a real job. And I'd say, David, can I post-date a check? Some of you know what a check is. Can I, can I, can I post-date a check and you not cash it until Friday? Because we have no groceries and I'd like to go buy some things for my children to eat. That happened very, very often. I'll never forget the day that we came home and sitting on our doorsteps were bags of groceries. I don't know who told people how poor we were, but we, we needed what was in those bags. And somebody knew us because the kind of stuff they put in those groceries were the kind of things that we ate and our kids needed. We still to this day don't know who did it, but there was incredible thanksgivings to God for those groceries sitting on the doorsteps. I'll never forget the day that my neighbor who had, who had graduated and moved away, I bumped into him on campus and he was there in Fort Worth teaching with a couple of other guys and he said, hey, I've been telling these guys how good your wife cooks. And I looked at him and he said, and they know my wife doesn't. I mean, she didn't, really. I don't know if she does to this day, but, but next door, he, he would always come over and eat our food, all right? And so Ron had told about how good KK cooked. He said, maybe we can stop by. I said, hey, man, come on over for dinner tonight. That'd be great. So I called KK and I said, look, Ron's coming over tonight with a couple of his buddies, and they're coming over for dinner. So good luck. So she, she cooked dinner. We got there, she'd had this turkey or something, hen, and it was frozen. She'd gotten out, and she'd cooked green beans and corn and made some homemade bread, and she put it out on the table, and those guys ate like hogs. I mean, they were licking the, ta- the plate, you know, and they ate everything we had, and when they got up and they started to leave, KK said to me, I'm sure glad they enjoyed it because that's all the food we have. There's nothing else in the freezer and there's nothing else in the cabinet. And we started picking up their plates to wash them and every one of them had put money under their plates and left us enough for a week's worth of groceries. Many thanksgivings to God. That's what it means to get in on what God's doing. When you can give from your heart and watch God provide. There's an interesting twist that he puts in here that maybe you've never seen before. I confess I've never seen it before. It's in verse 13. Because this resulting in the glory of God says, By their approval in this service, they, the ones who receive the offering, will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. What did he just say? He said, you will give evidence that you're saved by the way you give, by the way you submit to the confession of the gospel. Look, I'm not going to say if you don't give, you're not saved. (laughs) But I am going to say, if you don't have a giving heart, you're not in touch with the one who's living in your heart. Because the Christ who lives in your heart moves you to see others, not just yourself. He moves you to want to get in on his work. And that form of submitting to the confession that you are following Christ moves you to generosity. You celebrate the provision from God. You celebrate the evidence of the gospel. You cheerfully give as God works in your life. Remember that verse we started with? 
Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't love the begrudging giver. This is where I kept thinking about that this week. Of He says, like I need it. Here, take your measly check back, right? But God loves the cheerful giver. And that word cheerful there is the word where in, in the Greek text where we get our word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. This is so cool. I get to get in on this. You know how somebody, you read something, you hear something, and you, you don't know how to respond. That's, that's hilarious. I mean, it's just this spontaneous bursting of laughter from your heart. And here he says, don't go, well, I guess I'll give my offering. But instead, learn what it means to celebrate the opportunity to get in on what God's doing. And then all of this time, he's been talking about money. And he's been talking about what it means to give in response to God's working in your heart. And then look how he ends verse 15. It's like he just stops and says, look, thanks be to God for his inexpressible, undescribable gift. Because that's really where all this grace comes from. Because we came to God and we gave him our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. I'm going to ask you to stop for a moment. And you prayed earlier that God would speak to your heart. Would you pray with me now? As we come to the time of closing our Bibles and singing a final song, what do you need to do to say yes to God? If your heart's been stingy, repent. If, you're, if you've been holding with a tight hand, let go. If you've been too blind to see the needs of others, ask him to open your eyes to see those who need things and who need Christ. And Lord, as we enter into this season called Thanksgiving and moving into a time of celebrating the coming of Christ, May your grace work deeply in our lives. May you work so in our hearts that we beg for the opportunity to give. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Would you look this way? As we thought about this sermon today that really ought to be a series I talked with KK I said honey I think it's time to give the church a Christmas gift so we ordered two cases of this book that we want to give you today on the way out preferably one for per family but if you got a lot of readers in your home take two all right and I challenge you just to read a chapter you can just do it like Christian roulette all right just find one and just open it up and read a chapter and I promise you'll see some incredible incredible insights from this guy he wrote a book this thick on heaven (laughs) and he wrote this little book on the treasure principle but it is no less powerful to see how it challenges your heart to learn how to celebrate and give hilariously because God loves a cheerful giver.
So I want to give you that today on the way out. But before we do that, I want to ask you to stand. And we're going to sing a song about our salvation and our personal relationship with Christ. And if you need someone to pray with you, I'll be hanging out here at the front while others are singing. We can pray together if you need it. You can remain in your seat. You can come up here and kneel. But whatever God's saying to your heart about your relationship with him, do business with him now during this song.